Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest today is Kadri Leek, Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Thanks very much for joining me today, Kadri. My pleasure. All right. Uh, great to have you on the show again. Uh, today we're going to talk about what is known as the October events, the constitutional crisis um, that culminated on October 4th, 1993, 30 years ago, uh, this Wednesday, with the shelling of Moscow's White House, then the Russian Parliament building, uh, by order of President Boris Yeltsin. Before we start, I just wanted to mention a change in the format um, that kicked in a couple months ago now. We're no longer conducting this podcast on X, uh, the social network formerly known as Twitter. Instead, we are recording it in the studio. But as before, you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other Radio for Europe podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, I should mention, we're also going to touch on a couple of uh, developments related to Ukraine um, that occurred over the weekend. Uh, the uh, the U.S. Um, uh, bill that was adopted at the last minute, um, averting a government shutdown, but uh, the bill... Um, omitted uh, billions of dollars in, in aid to Ukraine. Um, that was kind of the, the compromise uh, that allowed it to to pass. Um, but um, and there is there is uh, expectation, I guess, uh, on, in terms of uh, the Biden administration and Ukraine that um, there will be a a separate bill um, providing for for continued or additional uh, support for Ukraine uh, drafted and, and and passed soon. So, um, but uh, that of course is not certain at this point. The other the other development was the election where the elections in Slovakia um, that uh, have in which uh, former Prime Minister Robert Fico's party, I guess won uh, most of the votes, uh, plurality, and he'll have to form a government but or seek to do so. But uh, this is seen as a blow to Ukraine uh, because he's more more pro-Russian and um, like Orban in Hungary, um, uh, not, um, not savvy on supporting Ukraine. Um, so we'll get to that a little bit later. But going back to the October events, uh, in 1993... Yeltsin and his government were embroiled in a showdown with mostly communist and nationalist forces in the Russian legislature, which was left over from the Soviet era, over painful economic reforms in the wake of the USSR's collapse less than two years earlier in December 1991. Now, on September 21st, 1993, Yeltsin announced that he was dissolving parliament, uh, the Supreme Soviet, as it was called, and uh, calling new elections. His opponents refused to leave the building. Uh, this is the building called the White House uh, on Russia's, uh, on the Moscow River, or Moscow River, um, and now uh, houses the Russian uh, government. Um, his opponents called Yeltsin's actions unconstitutional, refused to leave the building, and declared that one of their leaders, Yeltsin's Vice President Alexander Rutskoy, was now the President of Russia. 
Uh, after a few days of violence in the streets, the Russian military shelled the upper floors of the White House and stormed the building, putting the standoff to an end. The government said that 187 people died in the clashes, while opponents contend the death toll was well over 1,000. Uh, and then in December of that year, a, a couple months later, uh, Yeltsin pushed through a new constitution that increased the powers of the president, shaping Russian politics for decades to come. Kadri, my first question is fairly simple, but also quite broad. How important uh, were these events in shaping Russian politics, and, and how important have they turned out to be uh, for Russia and, and its people? Uh, thanks, Steve. Um, yes, well, I was there when it happened. I was in Moscow um, early October uh, 1993, and in a way... Um, that's my professional anniversary under rose bullets uh, near the White House. I, I decided I wanted to become a Moscow correspondent as a journalist. And that's how my lifelong interest in Russia, but had been there actually also earlier, but uh, it, it found a professional track for itself. So I have been asking that very question from myself for the past 30 years. Um, what did it really mean? Could it have been avoided? And to be honest, I don't have a crystal clear answer. I mean, it is clear that what happened was really bad uh, for Russian democracy, among other things. Uh, President shelling a parliament, uh, many people killed. Uh, it was biggest street fighting allegedly in Moscow after 1917 revolution, that is all bad enough. And in retrospect, of course, I wish that uh, some Western leaders with whom Yeltsin consulted would have had wisdom to tell him that, you know, Boris, whatever, but don't allow a uh, military solution to that crisis. But then again, was that the moment that defined Russia's future? That I really do not know. Russians themselves are debating it as well. I remember when I was in Moscow late 2014, after annexation of Crimea, when battles in Donbass were already going on, that was actually the topic of discussion in uh, in, in many kitchens or, or pubs. You know, what was the turning point? When did it all go wrong? Um, and overwhelmingly, I think people suggested that 1996 elections that were clearly skewed and put, possibly falsified to benefit Boris Yeltsin. And many of the spin doctors even who had been working for Yeltsin in 96 now said that, yeah, had we managed to conduct uh, proper elections with procedures and institutions remaining intact, then maybe the power of communists would not have been so uh, so bad. 1993 is seen much more ambivalently. It is, you know, I think most Russians themselves tend to see it as a uh, tough, trauma of, of a new state, but not the moment, you know, 
falling into sin, right? The original sin after that, all other decisions inevitably are um, are, are uh, tarnished as, as well. Um, and I think it is not inevitable. I mean, we often tend to think of many other things that follow this direct consequence of 1993. Not all of that is true. For instance, the war in Chechnya, there is a line of thinking that argues that Yeltsin relied on the military support in 1993. Uh, after that, he became so dependent on the military that he had to give in to their demands to go to Chechnya in 1994. Well, I don't think that holds water. Um, I mean, my, my colleague Kirill Shamiev would be a lot better to talk on that, but Russian military has actually pretty much always been subordinate to civilians, uh, even to its own detriment, as we are seeing right now, uh, when we're asked to uh, wage a politically motivated war and also politically um, guided war. I mean, it's said that, that, that President Putin himself is, is, uh, has been at least drawing uh, battle plans, devising strategy, and it's it's clear that <clears throat> that that resulted in bad outcomes and loss of many lives. Nonetheless, the military have come along, and and likewise, I think the war in Chechnya it wasn't initiated by the military, even though Defense Minister Khrushchev was a can-do man. But actually, it was still Yeltsin who who must have thought that this was a good way to fix his waning popularity. And the military went along. Some of them even have, have, have complained pub publicly. Likewise, the super presidential constitution, to what extent uh, had that roots in 1993? And to what extent, um, I now wonder, did it all have to do with Yeltsin? I mean, you can see his leadership style leaving imprints on, on many of those things. And um, <clears throat> I mean, Lilia Shevtsova has summed it up very well in one of her books about Russia's transition, where he wrote that uh, Gorbachev put an end to monopoly of power of Communist Party, even though he never finished the communism. Up until the end of his life, he's said to have read Lenin's uh, texts. Uh, Yeltsin, though, uh, put an end to communism as a true political ideology and even true political force, but he restored the personalist power model uh, that is traditional to, to Russia. And I think he really could not help it. Um, I don't think he was authoritarian, consciously, knowingly. Uh, you could see that he sort of wanted Russia to be a modern Western state. He he had some respect to freedoms. He had some tolerance to criticism. But when it came down to political battle, he, he could become very, I mean, he was a political animal. He was a fighter and he wanted to prevail. Uh, 
while for the sake of shaping a balanced political system, it sometimes would have been necessary uh, not to prevail. Uh, so I'm now asking myself, you know, maybe given Yeltsin's personality, many of these things would have happened one way or other, given how also how Russia's political landscape, I mean, how it was shaped and there were no political parties, institutions who could realistically have uh, done much about it to shape a more balanced political system. It is kind of a tragedy. And I think Russian democratic forces in Russia have long ago known it. I mean, they had that question from early 90s, should I go with Yeltsin or should we not? And Yeltsin was the best there was in terms of a political fighter. Uh, there was no figure of the same magnitude. At the same time, his personal shortcomings were evident from early on, and and the more so time passed. And that dilemma kept splitting the democratic forces, and some people decided one way, others decided other way. Um, so, yeah, to sum it up, I I think Russia would have really benefited from, from a president with different character at that point. I mean, these times were bound to be turbulent. Um, and it would have been great to have a statesman-like character who would have had foresight to be shaping a political system, who would not have been clinging so much to his own political fate. Uh, Yeltsin was not that, but then again, the West was no wiser. I mean, we also, quite collectively, equalized Yeltsin with democracy. And, uh, and actually, that way, to some extent, we might consider ourselves complicit. Uh, thanks very much, Kadri. Um, yes, of course, uh, I guess records of, of Clinton's first conversation with Yeltsin after the uh, after the shelling of the White House kind of bear that out, uh, you know, strong support, essentially. Um, uh, and I, I think maybe I'm misrepresenting you, but I think I would agree uh, or I would say that um, perhaps the election of 1996 was it was kind of a, a bigger watershed in, in terms of uh, you know when things sort of went went wrong. Obviously, the, the situation in October 1993 was you know went wrong and was terrible, but but maybe that had a bigger effect. Um, now I'm going to preface my second question, which is related uh, with a personal anecdote. You mentioned you were. Uh, in Moscow at the time, in October 1993. I was also there. Um, I had my own kind of professional uh, start uh, as a journalist in at, during the uh, abortive uh, coup in 1991. Um, and then after about a year back home in the United States, I'd arrived in Moscow in late September, sometime between Yeltsin's declaration that the legislature was dissolved and uh, the October 4th shelling of the White House. Before I left the U.S., a neighbor in New York asked what I thought would happen with the standoff in Russia. Uh, and if I recall correctly, I said it, it just didn't seem likely to be resolved peacefully. And, of course, you know, I said, I'm not sure how 
you know, those, those guys are in the parliament building. Um, not sure what, how they're going to get them out or how they'll, how it could be resolved peacefully. And of course, it was not. So my question uh, is whether it could have been resolved in some other way, and would a different approach, one that did not involve the shelling of the White House, would that have led to a better outcome for Russia? So I'd be interested in your thoughts on that, Kadri. Well, I assume it would have led to a better outcome. I mean, the president itself, to, to have a sharp political crisis to be, but to be able to resolve it peacefully. I mean, that would already set the precedent that every later leader in a similar situation will be measured against. So it's really sad that that didn't happen. Could it have happened? Frankly, I do not know. I mean, in theory, definitely, yes. In practice, though, I don't know. In theory, I mean, many analysts have argued that the zero option, so-called, would have been possible. Simultaneous elections of, of president as well as, as, as parliament. And that was even suggested, I think, by both sides, but not at the same time. And all these agreements, I mean, several were actually achieved uh, to chart a way out of a crisis, uh, choreography of, of, of steps that had to be done. But all these agreements failed. Uh, and of course, with each failure of respect and trust towards the other side, uh, declined further, and it was all magnified by economic decline, uh, fear of communism returning, and 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 so forth. And what is troubling, I'm not sure actually to what extent people were even seeking to compromise. I have been thinking of um, an anecdote one of. Uh, my Moscow acquaintances, a fairly well-known expert, told me, and he was a person who attended all demonstrations uh, for freedom in, in, in late 80s, early 90s. And when he was working for some government institution, uh, working on reforms, he was, I don't know, a young intern or whatever. And then one day, the parliament sent the uh, sort of plan for economic recovery. Uh, maybe it was unprofessional, maybe, you know, but what, what was professional in Russia at the time anyway? But they clearly had tried to do some thinking, uh, you know, to, to approach the issue from their angle and, uh, and suggest some solutions. And uh, in the government, the so-called young reformers, and maybe there were some Western advisors of ours involved, I don't remember. They took the paper, said, ha, huh, okay. Uh, they extracted the parts that Yeltsin clearly could not like. They uh, Did they add something uh, to it? I don't remember. But anyway, they sent it on to the Kremlin in with a letter and in the shape that skewed its real content. And the wish behind it was was clear. Let's show to the president that parliament is counterproductive. We cannot work with them. Uh, 
uh, we need to do our own thing without them. And I think ever since that day, uh, that friend of mine became slightly skeptic about Western style democracy in, in Russia because he had seen that risk was not a fair game. And I think that I think it backs up in the sense that the so-called economic reformers, uh, they they paid little thought to yet again balance political system. I think their aim was to make sure that command economy and communists will never come back. Uh, and they they tried to conduct changes in, that would allow them not to come back. Privatization was done without sound legal basis to the people who didn't deserve it, exactly in order to avoid any economic assets from falling in into communist hands. Um, and I mean, I think also political analysts have said that you know the, the young reformer camp they were more economic technocrats rather than true democrats. Now there were, of course, demo democrats as well along among, uh, around Yeltsin, and and they would they would argue for political reform, but Yeltsin chose to listen to the other camp. So and he, I'm sure in that moment he clearly must have had his reasons. So the criticism uh, from the, with hindsight. Uh, and after 30 years is, is, is clearly unfair in many ways. But in retrospect, it seems that maybe they should have prioritized political reform uh, and get sound legislation in place before, before you conduct things like privatization, because that the way privatization was conducted has actually delegitimized capitalism for a long time and it actually has also deprived Russian businesses of voice in political affairs. I mean, for a short period they were in the position to dictate terms to the state, uh, mid-90s, late-90s, when cash-trapped Yeltsin was unpopular, but when Putin came they actually lost their power to say anything. So Russian business has always had either too much or too little say in the country, but never the right amount, never properly in, in the way that, you know, business could speak uh, and, and help steer the country, uh, sort of democratic capitalist country in the right direction. You need to, you need to listen to various social groups and that includes big business. But but they have always been either uh, over empowered or under empowered, and so forth, so forth. Uh, also, I think um, communism. I I think it is true that that one deep shortcoming, and 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 the thing that Yeltsin should have started at least, but did not properly, was uh, dealing with communist legacy in a systemic way, uh, condemn communist crimes, um, yet again, in a deeper manner than he did, you know, for him, it was a political fight against communists as a political party in his day, he wanted to win over them. Uh, 
but you know to give a moral assessment to decide what do you do whom do you punish whom do you forgive uh you know how to handle it the full complex of measures that are known under the uh, term transitional justice russia absolutely needed that and and they didn't too partly exactly because in that polarized political landscape focus was on crushing communists at at any cost um and the the absolute irony of course is that you know they may have crushed communists as effective political party, though, you know, one could question even that. Uh, but they failed to really put an end to communist legacy in ways that were unambiguous. So, yeah, yet again, to sum up my, um, my, 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 my long answer that basically consists of questions I'm, I'm still looking answers to myself. In theory, it, it, it certainly would have been possible, but in practice, given given the situation where was that of deep crisis, given the personalities, given the urgencies, I do not know. Well, thanks very much. I, I think probably nobody knows, uh, but those are some great points about about the role of business and 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 the idea. I think is crucial that. Um, you know, Yeltsin and uh, Zhao, I guess, were out to to crush communism, but not not to deal with its legacy. And you know, you mentioned, and and this was what happened in October nineteen ninety three, and in the nineteen ninety six um, election, uh, and as you mentioned, with in privatization. So, um, so that's that seems like it is a big. Uh, kind of factor uh, that, that shaped Russia. Now, I'm going to, for the last question, I'm going to change tack a bit, although there's, I guess, a relationship. Um, uh, of course, after, in December 93, um, Yeltsin pushed through a constitution that was, uh, you know, gave the president more power, um, and he remained president until the last day of 1999 when he put uh, Putin in place as acting president. Uh, Putin still in power now, um, and uh, in February 2022, he launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, uh, using force in the most uh, uh, most serious way. Um, but uh, what I wanted to ask about is is uh, as I mentioned uh, at the start, a couple of developments um, that that have happened just in the past few days. So my question is, in terms of Western support for Ukraine, and and I, and I should mention, a lot of analysts say that essentially Putin, Putin's only hope for kind of what he could consider victory in the war in Ukraine is a, a decrease uh, in Western support for Ukraine. So my question is, in terms of Western uh, support for Ukraine, how big a deal are the results of the election in Slovakia? and the exclusion of billions of dollars in aid to Ukraine uh, from the bill whose adoption averted a U.S. government shutdown? Yeah, I do not know. <laughs> Likewise, we, we will know it from uh, from hi with hindsight a uh, few, few years from now. Um, what can one say about Slovakia? I mean, we don't like the election result, and Putin probably likes it. Uh, but we don't really know what the actual policy will be. Um, 
Slovakia has I mean, despite Robert Fizzo making his first call, as I understand, to Viktor Orban, Slovakia has never been quite Hungary in uh, in, in in most of its attitudes, instincts, uh, behavior, so forth. So let's see uh, who, what, what shape the new government actually will take. They are still to form a government that's not a done deal. Um, and what the policy will be. I, I think Slovakia has actually been really smart. It is a small country, uh, but they have done a lot to help Ukraine while also benefiting themselves. I think they have really been smart in cultivating their own relationship with the US, for instance. When they have donated weapons to Hungary, they have taken care that they are compensated with uh, better models. So, um, you know, what Slovakia has been doing, it it hasn't been it's it's been nice and noble, but you know, not self-sacrifice in the sense that it leaves Slovakia somehow worse off or poorer. I would say that their support to Ukraine has actually uh, gained uh, upgraded uh, military to themselves as well as upgraded political relationships uh, with many powers that be, and it would really be stupid. Uh, to to leave that track. So we'll see. Um, and the US, I think it is a warning sign, of course. Uh, it's probably not fatal. I think there are other means to uh, continue supporting Ukraine uh, to find that money. Uh, but But of course, I mean, all bets are off when it comes to presidential election. I mean, that is the that is the true question, as concerns the U.S. Uh, the outcome of the elections, and you know, assume even Biden wins, as um, someone smart just told me. You know, if he wins, it will still be like Boris Yeltsin winning in 1996. Everyone will be asking, yes, but what after that? Um, and I think that I mean, all these developments um, will will keep feeding Putin's hope that he might still win, that uh, that that the West can still get tired, uh, political constellations could emerge that are favorable to him, and bar any big political political collapse in Russia, which cannot be entirely excluded, but it's still more unlikely than likely. Uh, bar that, I think Russia will, yeah, continue fighting that war. That said, you know, our attempts to micromanage Russia's political landscape um, have never been successful. So we probably should, should still focus on what we can do for Ukraine and and stop thinking uh, too much about how that will, what the effect on Russia's political calculations will be. I mean, up to a point you need to think about it, nuclear escalation and all that. I I wouldn't totally dismiss these things, but, 
but to see every Western political development through the Russian lens, I think is also wrong. We have our, we have our own democracies, democratic processes. We uh, uh, we need to address the desires or grievances of our own audiences without viewing every step as either benefiting or not of Russia, because, I mean, that would, in the end, make us all far too much dependent on on Russia. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's, a, that's a great observation, I think, Kadri. Um, and I just uh, certainly would agree with you that to sort of, I guess, too early to, to, to tell, you know, what's going to happen in Slovakia and what uh, what uh, will happen in the U.S., um, but certainly um, no signs at this time that, you know, that Russia, the Putin, are going to kind of stand down or uh, give up on the war. Certainly, you know, imagine they have, uh, he has uh, some hope there in, based in part on, um, on some of these developments. All right, um, we are going to wrap it up here. Um, thank you very much for joining me, Kadri. My pleasure. All right, um, thanks again. And I've been speaking to Kadri Leek, Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. And my name is Steve Gutterman, Editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. I'll be back next week for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia. And please keep an eye out for my newsletter, The Week in Russia, which comes out most Fridays. Thanks for listening.